Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach is wasting the time of both the buyer and seller at every stage, especially when sellers are using shallow and outdated data. Your organization can overcome these challenges with technology that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to better outcomes like more pipeline, higher win rates, and larger deals. We call this deep sales, and we've built the first deep sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash trial. That is linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash trial and get started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from London at 116 Piccadilly. And if you don't know where that is, it's the Athenaeum Hotel. We try to come back and broadcast them here at least once a year. An amazing hotel with great history. Started back in 1850. And uh, as you'll hear during the rest of the show, has had some legendary guests as well as some legendary general managers the name Sally Bullock should come to mind to anybody who's ever been to London. There's a different way to see London. You can do the traditional hop-on, hop-off bus. You can go see the iconic usual suspects, you know, when they're open, like Big Ben and the Tower of London and, and of course, Parliament and a few other places that made famous most recently by the wedding. But my next guest has a different way to see London. In fact, he's the author of Bloody London, A Shocking Guide to London's Gruesome Past, and present. His name is Declan McHugh. Quite an undertaking there. 
Yeah, um, when I'm doing the tour, I describe myself as the antidote to those people that you mentioned. People spend the first, you know, four days or six days of their tour doing that stuff. Right. If you like the mainstream stuff. They go to Westminster, go to Poets yeah. Corner. Oh, yeah. yeah, I got it. They do Big Ben and they do what St. Paul's. Then they save me for sort of the second last night or the last night when they want to get the dark stuff. Well, you know, if they've read any Charles Dickens, they could, they could yeah. start with that. Exactly. Yeah. He covers the uh, grave robbers, which is something that I get into as well. Not personally, but... Talk, I understand. Talk, talk, talk I understand. <laughs> but it's called a shocking tour. So, you know, every city has a history of homicide and murder and disappearances. Correct. London seems to have its more share than others. Yeah, everyone knows Jack the Ripper, um, but there's much, much more. I set up the tour deliberately to be the, if you like, the, the non-Jack the Ripper tour, but he's in there, but there's much more because there are many more serial killers and there's a lot of other grim stuff. And so I've kind of set aside my unique selling point being the, the guy who does it all and not just Jack, because everyone's a bit sick of Jack, to be honest, and there's a lot more than Jack. I, you, should, you should retitle the tour, I'm Sick of Jack. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, true, though. But most people think that... Well, wait, let me let me play devil's advocate for a second. Most people think they know about Jack the Ripper, mm. right? Yeah. I'm not even sure that's true, to be really honest with you. I mean, I've had, you know, scores of thousands, and they, they don't know anything, to be honest. Very, very few know much. Um, they know the sort of... The title is iconic in itself, and they have this figure of a person in the fog with a knife menacing women and someone actually said to me um something like um is but we know that guy don't we we know who he is i've seen the photo <laughs> i said no that's an illustration exactly a, ge a generic illustration of jack the ripper now, what they got, get confused what got you interested in this you know um because you're from northern ireland i'm from northern ireland and so there may be some connection there i i i saw a lot of um not so great stuff happening Back there in the, in the 70s. and Londonderry. Uh, and I had a lot of pers personal stuff. Um, our house was, was demolished three times by bombs wow. in Northern Ireland. So there may be some connection with me getting an interest in the dark and side. And a, a piece of trivia, the most bombed hotel in the world yeah, is the Europa. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I haven't traced this back too much. Maybe a psychiatrist needs to do this. <laughs> but um, maybe there may be some connection. But um, I, th I think I did psychology and I'm interested in what the human mind can do. I'm interested in Jack the Ripper as, and I'm being slightly ironic here and tongue-in-cheek, a type of genius, as Bernard Shaw, I think, called him. And I'm interested in I do a Shakespeare tour as another genius. So what the mind can do in different directions interests me. Exactly. Now, you also talk about the prison, right? In Newgate. Newgate, Newgate yeah. yeah. Exactly. I, I stopped there, and we talk about the modern serial killers um, that whose trials featured there. You know, if you, I'm going to be a serial killer, I would like to be a modern serial killer. <laughs> yeah, you get you get much, thoroughly modern serial. Killer. You get much better prison accommodation, I can tell you. Yeah. Um, back in the day, you literally would be walked along a piece of ground from you, Old Bailey. From well, at the Newgate at the time. Yeah, yeah. Called Dead I'm Man's. I'm talking from the court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. De Dead Man's Walk. And you were walking deliberately. The state made you walk across the bones of your other people who had been executed over the years on your way to your execution. That's now, called getting acclimated. Yeah, yeah, or state torture. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's really the sort of thing that the serial killers themselves do and like to do, but the state's doing it. 
crazy. And, and, and then you were unconsecrated. You couldn't be. But do you, as part of your tour, do you go on Dead Man's Walk? No, it's we're not. It's 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 gone now, unfortunately, because the whole thing has been rebuilt. Yeah. As the old Bailey. Wow. So that's that's gone, and we've got the photos. And I bet you do. Unconsecrated. Part of the deal was that you knew you weren't going to be resurrected. All right, we've talked about the past. Give me the present. Well, we have we have the serial killers. We we find them every few years. Uh, we just find our most recent one was a gentleman who was um, killing other gentlemen. That was seen at the that trial was at the Old Bailey, just I think one and a half years ago. Um, they they still turn up regular frequency. We don't have do, the. Do you states. actually take me to the scenes of the crime? Um, I tr- I try to go to places which are very close to where actual things happened, and I say on the tour, and I mean it, that we're going to go to places where things happened, and I'm going to see if people actually feel something in those places, and some people do. I had an American uh, football player on the tour, a huge gentleman, one of those big guys, and uh, he can withstand the car crash type impacts, you know, that when they charge each other, and he came on the tour, and he came to an alley that I go to, and it's a very creepy alley, and he said, within 10 seconds, I see a ghost, and I saw his face turn completely white, and this guy was not used to that kind of experience. Mm. It can happen. I tell people I'm going to try and attempt to broaden what I call their circle of consciousness. I'm going to try and get them to really feel places in a way they never did before. And some people are attuned to that stuff, and sometimes they don't know it until they go there. All right, so obvious question. What's the scariest place for you? On the tour? Yeah. It will be that place. This is a place where I've seen people faint. I've had um, ghost sightings on a regular basis. I've had um, convulsions. I've had a person come from the US of A with equipment, um, some kind of electronic equipment, and off the Richter scale. That place is incredibly creepy. And what's Um, that place? It's a place off Fleet Street. Fleet Street was the Oxford Street. Of course. But Fleet Street, I remember, of course, were all the newspapers. Yeah, of course. They've all gone now. They've all gone. They're all, they're all down at Docklands. or yeah. yeah. Back in the day, it was the place where you would end up going when you first right. came to London. So a lot, of, a lot of murders took place around there. A lot of bad things took place around there. My suspect to be Jack the Ripper lives just off there, and I go there as well. Numerous, numerous what we call, what you would call sketchy places, which I deliberately take people to. Deliberately. <laughs> Deliberately. The point is to take them out of the comfort zone. Do you make them sign a disclaimer? Um, I've got good insurance. <laughs> but I do say, I do say, and I mean it, don't bring your kids along if they're under 12. Because I had some experiences where I had 9-year-olds and 10-year-olds. And I had one experience where a family of four came. And the mum and the daughter refused to go when the son started to say, I can't take this anymore. So son and dad had to go. Mum and daughter stayed. And at the end of the tour, a guy wrote in my visitor's book, fantastic tour, kids were being sick. I call that mission accomplished. Success. <laughs> That's success in my, oh my book. God. <laughs> Everything's about storytelling, and there's a lot of mythology. What do you actually believe? In, in relation to one particular the, thing? To, well, the stories that you're telling. Um, take Jack. You know, Jack the Ripper, we have to come back to him. He's central. He's a major part of the tourist industry. We don't know who he is, you know? There are 200 theories. I wrote a, the book, Bloody London. I've got two chapters on him. And the first chapter is a totally cynical chapter about the Ripper industry, which I'm part of. And every few months, there has to be a new Ripper suspect to keep the industry going. And it's as cynical as that. I have my own suspect. I sell him on the tour. You know, there are 200 other suspects. And they're getting ever more ridiculous, in my opinion. Does any of them or do any of them have credence with you? I mean, uh, is, is there one you go, if I had to choose, that's the this, guy? Well, I have the first chapter is a cynical overview right. on Jack. The second one on Jack is my suspect, who is called Montague John Druitt. And 
I list the name point. alone. He's he's, <laughs> he's the guy. He's yeah. got the John Wayne Gacy three name thing. Yeah. You know, when you got the three name thing, you're a serial killer. Um, seriously. Lee, so uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. You, you've got it. You know, the all James the three Earl, name thing. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> so he's got that first credential. But no, seriously, I, I list point after point after point after point about this man. What's interesting is I did a lot of research and. I know for a fact that there is more stuff out there because when I did the research, I found stuff that was in no book. It's just simply a matter of the dog's work of going through the documentation in the archives. And cross-referencing And cross-referencing. And I do a So you could tour. probably tell me if there are any murders around the Athenaeum Essen Hotel. Essentially, yes. I mean, I can't at this precise second. Um, but yes, I mean, because it's, it's blood-soaked every But in the corner. interest of fairness, they do not have a Jack the Ripper suite here. <laughs> Yeah, they actually, they, they they almost do that now. Some of the hotels, I mean, have, you know, had famous serial killers and people know it and they will go and stay in that room. I list the room numbers um, in my book. Well, go to Estes Park, Colorado. It's The Shining. They still, yeah, exactly. I mean, they still sell that the, the door number for that room. To everybody. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've had them on my tour and they really? say it's really creepy. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it is really creepy. You know, you walk up there, you can still hear Jack Nicholson saying, here's Johnny. Still yeah. in the top 10 films, as I ask people, what's your favorite, most scary horror film? The Shining is still in the top 10, um, which is a tribute, I think. It is. To Jack. It is. But we're all back to Jack again. Either back Jack Nicholson Jack. or Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper. And, and, they, they all work, and the serial killers worship Jack. They all know him. They all reference him. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. making a return visit, as a matter of fact, since our last trip to London. She's the curator of paintings and a collection that most of you may not know called the Wallace Collection. Her name is Lelia Packer. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you for having me back. But you would agree, I think, that most of my listeners have never heard of you. Yes, I think it's, it's, it's astounding, actually. And yet it's, we're talking about five generations of collections. Yeah. I mean, the Wallace Collection is a national museum. It's um, housed in this big mansion right behind Selfridges, behind Oxford Street. So you can combine shopping yeah, exactly. with a visit, Yeah, exactly. You course. can do great shopping and also see amazing art. It's free to the public. Even better, because yeah, London can... tends to be expensive. Exactly. It's astounding that not many people know about it. It's almost like a secret gem in the center of London. And you just reopened an expanded exhibition area. Exactly. Just a few days ago, we've opened a brand new 1.2 million pound, newly refurbished, expanded exhibition space that um, is really going to put the Walls Collection on the map as an exhibitions venue in addition to its permanent collection. All right. So let me ask the real stupid question here. <laughs> if admission is free and you just spent 1.2 million pounds, how are you financed? Well, we get government grants there as a national museum, but there of course we, we have to fundraise quite a bit because those are not enough to keep us We're talking going. serious donors. Serious donors. Yes. Yeah. But when As we go like back, most, all the generations in the family that, that started this, what am I going to see there? Is there a specific kind of art 
that I'm going to see? Yes, it's amazingly specific, but also incredibly varied. So um, That sounds like <laughs> you're just contradicting yourself. <laughs> well, maybe, but I'll explain why. The, the founders of the Walls Collection were the Marquises of Hartford, and they, over five generations, collected great art from the middle of the 18th century to the late 19th century. They had really a lot of buying power. They were great, rich landowners, and they were able to buy amazing things, particularly the fourth Marquis, who was buying in the middle of the 19th century, and he was able to outbid people like the Rothschilds and, and people like that to really get an amazing collection of paintings, furniture, works of art, sculpture. Okay, um, I have to ask... A really stupid question. Okay. Did they know at the time it was amazing, or they just wanted to just buy what they wanted to buy? I think they did. I think uh, particularly the fourth Marcus who was buying in the middle of the 19th century was an incredible connoisseur, so he knew exactly what he was buying. He knew uh, what a good Rubens was. He knew what a good Rembrandt was. He knew what a good Titian was. <laughs> so he wouldn't just buy any old Titian. But yeah, I've, I've had some really bad Titians <laughs> yeah, in my exactly. time. I just really can't stand that. Yeah. So he, in fact, he had great taste in that he knew sort of he was interested in provenance, so previous collections that objects had been in. He wanted to make sure that they had passed through important hands before they reached him. Oh, basic. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> and then he was also very acute to condition. So when it came to paintings, for example, he wanted paintings that were in very good condition. So as a result, the paintings that we have are in astounding condition. We really do have the best of the best, so you, you must come so and Do see we it. have really good Rubens, and do we have really good Titians? We do, we do. Velazquez, I mean, every big name that you can think of in, in European paintings painting almost you'll find at the a few monets collection. running around the family stopped collecting in the late 19th century so the so impressionists we, we don't have impressionists but we have great great old masters and wow. good great 19th century painters so if it's a good rubens the women are really big yeah exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. i don't know any other word to say it yeah, but yeah. you know a rubens when you see it it's like uh-oh voluptuous yeah, vol yes yeah. exactly exactly in that collection and the reason why you're having this expansion is simply because you need more space to house it Exactly, and to really contextualize the permanent collection because there hasn't been a really vibrant exhibitions program up until this point, and we have a really ambitious new director, and he wants to organize ambitious exhibitions that will contextualize the collection. And well, really speaking show of contextualizing, yeah. I mean, part of any successful museum or exhibition has to be great storytelling. Absolutely. And, and it's one thing to say, hey, we got a Rubens. That doesn't help me out. I need to know how it got there. You talk about the provenance. You know, I really want to know... Where did it come from? Who had it? Who right. died for it? Who killed for it? Who sold it? Who bought it? Who loved it? Right? Absolutely. And you're telling those stories. We're telling those stories. The exhibition that just opened now is about Richard Wallace, the sort of last great collector who left his He was the illegitimate son of the fourth Marquis. See, now we're telling stories. So now this is a story. So we're not sure. But the fourth Marquis leaves the collection to him. He continues to buy objects. He li then leaves now, it Now, he continues to buy Did he know what he was doing? He, he certainly did. He had great education from his father, ah. and he ends up buying amazing objects, unlike what his father's buying, so like a gold African head that we wouldn't have necessarily, a lot of arms and armor, so things he's complementing the collection of his So father. here comes the stuff where you say it's remarkably varied. Exactly. I mean, you wouldn't expect to find the best collection, really, or one of the best collections of arms and armor in Britain in, in this big mansion behind Selfridges, but there it is. So fans of arms and armor really must come and see it. Um, and in fact, the and I'm still searching for the Greenberg coat of arms. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
the um, the an exhibition that will open next year in early 2019 is going to be all about Henry Moore, the modern sculptor who actually lived in Hampstead and walked down to the Wallace Collection to sketch and study our Arms and Armour Collection. So he was inspired, he was by, inspired by the collection. By the collection, he particularly the helmets and created his own helmet head series and sculpture. And so it's going to be really interesting to see the arms and armor, particularly the helmets, alongside Henry Moore sculptures. That's cool. I think so. You know, speaking of the Impressionists, to give you an example, when Monet lived in Venice, he lived at the Hotel Europa Regina in a, in a, in a room on the third floor. And I, I wanted to hear more about the story, so they let me into the room. And I opened up the window, and somebody said, who had done their homework, he painted from this room looking out this window. We took a picture of what he saw on the canal. Yep. And sure enough, he did a painting that's at a museum on the East Coast in New York. We went back to the museum. We took a picture of that, and we dissolved from the window into that picture. And that really made it all worthwhile for me because now I could connect the whole idea. Amazing. And yeah. if you want to see more of Venice, you must also come to the Wallace Collection because we have an amazing collection of Venetian views. Ooh. 28 okay, I'm Venetian coming. views by Canaletto and his followers. And boy, nobody did it better than no, he did. No, I mean, Monet is amazing, but really, Canaletto is really the first to do it He's properly. He's the guy. Because yeah. in his paintings, everybody's in those paintings. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. We're talking to an old friend of mine who every time I come to the line, I try to get her on the show. An American based here, you might as well say you're, you're used to be an American because you, you've been here so How many years have you lived I in London? I have almost 11 years now. Julie Falconer, who does a great blog called A Lady in London. Yeah. But you're never in London. I'm traveling a lot, yes. I know. But you were here for the wedding. I was. It was amazing to watch it. See, and you watched it on TV, didn't I did, you? I, I did, know. I did. But I, I loved it. I mean, we're about a month away from it now. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought they did it great. I loved watching the queen looking completely like, what is going on here? Yes. I mean, this is not what she had in mind, the, I don't think. The whole royal family that her faces, especially during the sermon of the American preacher, yeah. was great. Yeah. Although, if you looked at Harry and, and Meghan, they were kind of chuckling. They, they were. They loved it. I know. But at the end of the day, whether you're a monarchist or not, people just loved the whole idea. Yes, absolutely. Everybody got really excited about the royal wedding here. You know, I was here for the wedding of his brother and Kate. Oh, great. And I, I laughed so hard because everybody was selling these commemorative plates. Like you had to have one. Yeah. They're all made in China. <laughs> As were these, by the way. Really? Oh, yeah. You go to Covent Garden right now. They're still selling, the, you know, the Harry and Meghan plate. And it's made in China. <laughs> it's probably toxic. Oh, gosh. I know. But everybody had to have one. True, true. But people don't realize how much a royal wedding brings into the coffers in terms of generating new business and revenue. Absolutely, yeah, and tourism, it's huge. I mean, we're talking, you know, it may have cost them a few million dollars for this wedding, add into the security cost, now you're talking a lot more million, but in terms of revenue, in terms of what people came and spent in restaurants and hotels and tchotchkes like those stupid plates... (laughs) It was a huge, I mean, multiple of that. Absolutely. And just great press for Britain and great goodwill. But then, of course, the minute the wedding was over, you took off, didn't you? I did. (laughs) You went to Rotterdam? I did, yes. What was in Rotterdam? Rotterdam, I was speaking at an influencer conference. Ah, so you were under the influence. (laughs) Under the influence of influence, yes. I love Rotterdam. Yeah, it's it's a great city. 
It's a very manageable city. Mm-hmm. And I always go to two places. One that I absolutely remember so well because I was on it. And one that I don't remember very well, but I want to know more about it. The one that I remember so well because I was on it is the actual SS Rotterdam. Oh, wow. Which is now permanently moored in the in the harbor there. Hmm. I was on its last voyage. Wow. In, back in, you don't want to know, <laughs> when it made its last trip across the Atlantic as a active fleet member of uh, Holland America Line. That's amazing. And then it went to another couple of cruise lines, and then the city of Rotterdam bought it. And huh. now they've made it a permanent hotel and restaurant right there in Rotterdam. That's great. But not far from it is the place I love, and you know it too, the Hotel New York. Yes. The history of that hotel, I mean, you need to walk in there and just look on the walls, because this is where all the Dutch immigrants went before they got on ships like the Rotterdam to cross the ocean and go to the New World. Yeah. And they've kept it just the way it was. They really have. It's a beautiful hotel. Yeah. And the food's not bad either. True. As an American based in London, Mm -hmm. where do you see the travel industry going right now? Uh, On one level, you're still dealing with the after effects of Brexit. Mm -hmm. We see stuff in the United States where the number of visitors from foreign countries is down Mm. between 5 and 7%. I mean, that's a very big hit on our economy. Right. Uh, you had one here, just in terms of Brexit, people weren't traveling as much because there was confusion and fear and yeah. about that decision. Is that still going on? A little bit. I think we have a lot more foreign tourists coming in because the pound has fallen, so it's become less expensive, for yeah, example, for you know, Americans to come I, to Britain. I remember, um, I just found it, by the way, um, my diary from when I was 12 years old on my very first European trip with my parents. Oh, wow. And uh, the pound was $2.57. Wow. Right? Now it's, what, $1.33? 33. Yeah. yeah. Not bad. <laughs> Not bad at all. I mean, especially if you're visiting. Yeah, yeah. When I moved here 10 years ago, 11 years ago, it was $2 to the pound, so... Very much more expensive. Now, as long as you're paid in dollars and not pounds, you're okay. <laughs> but you never know which one do you want to get paid in. True, true, exactly. What's been the hot spots for, for you this year in terms of where you think? I mean, one hot spot we see it from the States is Portugal. Absolutely. I mean, Portugal is booming. I mean, it's exploding. Yeah, you Lisbon know, it, in particular. Yeah, I mean, look, you've got five Michelin-starred restaurants there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a high standard of living, a relatively low cost of living. Yeah. I mean, what a great location. Definitely. Yeah, that's one. Give me another one. A lot of people I talked to recently are going to Iceland. It's been a hot destination for a while, but I think it's just still on everybody's radar screen here in the UK. Although, for me, uh, Iceland is still hot, but what's really starting to bubble up Mm -hmm. is the Faroe Islands. Yes. Yeah, they've brought a lot of Instagrammers there, and so people are seeing a lot of pictures of it. What's really coming back now, or bubbling up, is the the Faroe Islands. Absolutely. And most Americans don't even know where they are. Uh, (laughs) They're midway between Iceland, actually. You mentioned Iceland. And Norway. Yeah. And... And the ironic thing is you get there from Iceland or you double back from Copenhagen. Have you seen any changes as an, I can call you essentially an expat because you are. Yeah. As an American expat living in London. I've seen huge changes. Everything from the food getting better and better all the time to the city changing, the cityscape. We've got so many new skyscrapers, just lots and lots of changes all the time. But London, of course, still ranks as one of the most expensive cities. It does. And we feel it. Yeah. What, What have you seen the biggest hike? Over the course of time, I'd say the biggest hike is probably just in everyday things. So visitors might not necessarily see it, but locals will feel it. And you just see, that's, prices that's for how things. I try to gauge what's going to cost me to go anywhere yeah. by local goods and services, mm-hmm. right? How much does a tube of toothpaste cost? Right. How much is a bus ticket? Mm-hmm. You know, 
I happen to think the London tube is very expensive. Very expensive and gets more every year. I mean, you go in the city subway in New York, it's under three bucks. It ain't under three bucks here. Right, right. Right? Yeah, if you want a day pass, it's more than that. I know. Yeah. All right, so we were talking before about Portugal as, as one of the great places to go this year, Faroe Islands. What else is on your radar? On my personal radar, I'd love to get to Ethiopia, but I'm not sure that's on everyone else's radar. Well, I have a, a really good way to get there. Okay. And most people don't know it. It's called the Fifth Freedom uh, Flight from the U.S. Oh, great. People don't realize that it stops in Dublin on the way. Oh, okay. And it's Ethiopian Airlines on a brand new 787 Dreamliner. Wow. So they go L.A., Dublin, and then Dublin, Addis Ababa. Okay. And what's interesting about that is the airfare from L.A. to London, uh, L.A. to Dublin, excuse me, it's like 250 bucks. That's not bad. Because nobody knows they even fly right, it. Right, right. But that's how they're able to get to the U.S. if they don't mind stopping in Dublin on the way back to, to Addis because they need the landing rights. Right. No slots available for them in, in crowded places like Heathrow. Yeah. So they stop in Dublin. That's great. Yeah. So that's, one of your, what, that's on your list. It is. It is. And by the way, it's accessible to anybody now. True. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. What's the big surprise destination for you? That people are going to. Yeah. I think I'm just seeing a lot of people staying in Britain these days, as we mentioned before, with the pound getting weaker and sort of people being a bit nervous about Brexit. I'm seeing more and more people travel domestically. And I think that's great because I think Britain has so much to offer. And it's great that people are getting to know their own country better. So have you been to Brighton? I have. You Brighton's have. excellent for a day trip from London if you want sunshine and the beach. Right. Okay. I mean, uh, to me, I, I still have a beautiful painting that my uncle did of the old abandoned pier in Brighton. Oh, wow. Which, you know, says the old British beachgoers yeah. who would burn in two seconds in the sun, <laughs> right? Nobody ever wore sunscreen true, back then. True, All right, so people are staying within London. Are the trains getting any better? Slowly but surely. <laughs> <laughs> but not that much. There's still their issues, but I think train travel is still something that amazes me every time. It's such a great way to travel around and see the country. Are you still packing light? I am. I am. Still not checking bags unless I have to. That's the deal. Two kinds of airline bags, carry on and lost. <laughs> what about the States? Where have you not been in the States that you haven't gone to? Oh, I would love to go to New Orleans. I've never You've been. You've never been? I haven't, no. And I would absolutely love to go there. Well, believe it or not, you're seeing you know lots of great airlift in there now from really? overseas. Oh, great. You can get there from Britain. That's great. That's good to know. Without having to stop in the usual suspect places. Right, yeah. I mean, anytime you don't have to change planes at JFK or LaGuardia, that's a good day. Right, absolutely. But Atlanta, you, you, know, yeah. you, you will do it there. Yeah. All right, so New Orleans, what else? Alaska. I would love to go to Alaska. I've heard such good things about the nature and outdoors there. All right, but most of the time you're confining yourself to this part of the world. True. The hottest museum in London right now? Oh, goodness. I would say the Royal Academy. They've just come out of a really big uh, renovation and extension just a couple of weeks ago. And so it's a great place to go now because they've just completely unveiled the new wing and it's beautiful. And what, what, what did you particularly like? I particularly liked the architecture. It's sort of brand new halls and connecting sort of the old wing and the new wing. Um, they've put a lot of the permanent collection on display for the first time so people can go see it more as a museum than just for exhibitions. Wow. And it's open all the time. Yeah. Yep. Now, people don't realize that you can't do the British Museum in a day. Right. You can't do that gallery in a day either. Yeah. Yeah. It does take time. But you should give it at least, and don't try to do it all in the same time. Just, yeah. Just get in there and at least give yourself a day. Exactly, exactly. And that you'll enjoy it so much more that way. Riding along in my automobile. 
my baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. If you were to ask me to describe British cuisine 20 years ago or even 30 years ago, I would have said Wimpy's and Julie's Pantry and Run for Your Life. Boy, have things changed. I mean, it's been an absolutely gastronomic explosion here all over the United Kingdom, but especially in London, and every different kind of ethnic food you could want, but really cutting-edge cuisine. And joining me now, a Michelin star chef, I might add, and the, the chef in charge here at the Athenaeum, Chris Galvin. How are you, sir? Good afternoon. Welcome uh, to the Athenaeum. Yeah. Uh, great to see you here, Peter. You know, when I first came to the Athenaeum, the restaurants were nothing to, nothing to shout home about. They weren't. You had a great bar scene. You had a great lounge scene. You had a great afternoon tea that was a lot less rigid and formal than you'd find at the Ritz or at the Savoy and was actually accessible to people. But things have changed here in terms of what you're doing in the kitchen. Yeah, I think we've found our, our space now, the Brits. We, uh, I've, I've been cooking 46 years, and all the decent kitchens in this country were French, and we had to uh, learn under the French. They were the bosses. And Listen, when I came to London 25, 30 years ago and I wanted to eat out, you went to La Gavroche, you know, yes, I mean, right? Absolutely. I mean, but not to a British. No, we were kept in our space, and we stayed where we knew. But over the years, people like the Rue brothers, as you mentioned, the Gavroche, have been yeah. great. You know, at 21 years old, they took me under their wing, introduced me to some great chefs, got me an apprenticeship at the Ritz, and slowly discovered amazing The Ritz down the street here? Yeah. Wow. And for 26 years... I Which, by the way, you do not wear jeans for high tea. Thank you very much. Moving on. Get a jacket. Yeah. yeah, you better. But yeah, for 26 years, I used to write to all the best French chefs, go and work for them as a stagiaire for free. And yeah, I become a Francophile. And the more I studied uh, cuisine, it was all about the ingredients. And France has such amazing regions. And whereas in Britain, our, our latitudes, and that's what I learned was a secret... We're pretty much grey, north to south. But fortunately, through people like yourself, through media, customers have got a lot of interest in what we're doing. They want to know the provenance. Of well, they become more sophisticated. Absolutely. And, but and you can demanding. also source everything now. Yeah, and there's some, great, there's some great farmers, producers, great British wine, great British sparkling wine. We didn't Wait, taste stop, it. stop. Wait a second. <laughs> Are you telling me there's great British wine? Great. Amazing. It's gold medal winning, beating champagne, uh, hands down, uh, year after year at the moment. You know, you bring up an interesting point because the number one maker of, of single malt whiskey these days is Japan. The number one maker of great uh, brie cheese now is Canada. Uh, you know, if, if, if you look around where, where you think you're going to find something... Yeah, there's there's a region that makes unbelievable wine. I'm not talking about Britain now. And 75 percent of their of their product is imported or actually exported to France. You know where it is? Baja California and Mexico. Wow. Who knew? Right. So now you have this you're on the cusp of, of almost a revolution here of opportunity in the food. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a. It's, it's a bit like the Wild West. I love it. I, I look at lots of youngsters now, and I'm quite envious. You know, I call them the gunslingers because uh, when I started cooking, we had one book, Le Repertoire de la Cuisine, 
and that's the only book you could cook from. That was it. Yeah, and so well, now, in the United States we had the joy of cooking. That yeah. was the book. That was it. Some some great books. But the good news is, when you got to the restaurant here at the Athenaeum, now you had a, a clean pa- you had a clean canvas. You had a blank. You could actually create whatever you wanted. Absolutely, and it's an area I, I know well. I opened the, the Lanesborough just across the road, with, and uh, Mr. Gilardi. Mr. Gilardi, yeah. I worked for him for six years. I opened yeah. that, and uh, with, with Rosewood Hotels, and, and did a lot of my training in Dallas, in, in actual fact. But um, you know, in the States, I, I loved the freedom of uh, there. There were no rules, and there was just great ingredients, great farmers producing uh, produce that some. I hadn't seen it. All right, so country. all of those experiences that you had, what did you bring to the Athenaeum, and what's on the menu now that is representative of the lessons you learned? Well, uh, British veal. You know, down in Cornwall, we're producing great veal, whereas we had to go to France before. Um, there's great poultry around Britain. There's some fantastic cheeses. I think we've got more cheeses than France. Really? Yeah. So um, the stinkier and the creamier, the better. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and un- unpasteurized as well, and. Um, you know, Scotland, I've been a big fan of Scotland since I was, I was very young. And just beautiful shellfish, beautiful mushrooms, beautiful uh, fish, beautiful cattle. What um, about the butter? You still getting it from Brittany or are you, or are you, or are you kind of slumming? Well, British butter. You know, we have some great British butter. We've got great dairy herds in this country. But, um, yeah, it's just people gone out and they've had a go and uh, they've worked really hard. But great brandy coming up from Somerset. So, uh, so basically you're in the kitchen drinking a lot, aren't you, Chris? Yeah, all day. Okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Bringing it back to London, of course, is my next guest, historian and author David Nyaston. David, first of all, in the building we're in now, it goes back to 1850. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just so much. London is one of those cities that, you know, you don't have to take mass transit to get to history. You just walk. No, it's right there, isn't it? And I mean, just down the road in Piccadilly is where Lord Palmerston, who was the great British Foreign Secretary and Prime Minister and ladies' man in the mid-19th century. And lived. don't forget, and ladies' man. <laughs> yeah, and people would look from the other side of Piccadilly across the road in the evening, and they see him, the sort of silhouette of him standing up at his desk, because he always, rather like Gladstone, the other, one of the other great Prime Ministers of the 19th century, always you know, stood as he wrote. Really? Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that's walking distance from where we are right now. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're just walking on Piccadilly, just mm. using that as an example, mm. I mean, you're walking by so many different buildings mm. that played a role, Yes. not just in Charles Dickens' time. Mm. We're talking World War II. We're yes. talking, I mean, everything, every building has a story. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And I mean, the, the, the particular area that I concentrate on in my work as a historian has been the City of London. And right in the heart of it, you know, you've got these three extraordinary buildings, all very old. You've got the Bank of England, which, of course, is the central bank, the second oldest central bank in the world. And by the way, that building was built to intimidate. Yeah, that was the idea. And, yeah. and actually, about 10 years ago, at the time, 10 or 15 years ago, maybe, there was sort of anti-globalization protests and so on. And I happened to be talking with Mervyn King, who was governor of the Bank of England at that time. And 
who just sort of touched on these protests, and he said something like, we take comfort from our thick walls and our lack of windows. <laughs> it really was built to intimidate. I mean, just across the road from there is the Royal Exchange Building, opened by Queen Victoria in the 1840s, where the city's merchants used to gather through the 19th century. And then just going slightly further around uh, is Mansion House, where the uh, Lord Mayor of, of London traditionally lives. And there they are, at the very, you know, very heart of the city. And it's, uh, it's, a, bit, it's, you know, it's a terrific... Stand in the middle and look around just by the statue of the Duke of Wellington on the horse Now, Park. the building that fascinates sign. me, yeah, and I think it's going to come as a surprise to you, yeah, is not an old building at all. It's Lloyd's of London. Yeah, Richard Rogers. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, because it, it doesn't even look like it fits there. No, I mean, my impression is that it slightly took its own from the... It was the Pompidou Centre, wasn't it, in yeah. Paris? The, the the idea of inside out. Another building that doesn't look like it belongs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, we, no, exactly. Yeah. But at least you could say the Pompidou Centre is a kind of cultural yes. library, cultural centre and so on, whereas Lloyd's of London, of course, is very much a functional business building insurance Uh uh, and it was uh, extraordinary because the city at that time, we're talking here about the 1970s pushing into the 80s, was still a pretty conservative lowercase c as well as uppercase c place. Very clubby, very intimate, like a village really, yeah. and a bit you know, stuck in the mud. And yet the people running this, this actually very conservative traditional institution, at Lloyd's Insurance Market, commissioned this most extraordinary modernist building. And the one thing that has always fascinated me in that building is the bell, mm. the lutine bell. That's right. That's I mean, right. and the history of that came from a, one of the old Cunard ships, I believe. Yes, I think that's right. And it was salvaged after it sank, yeah. and that bell stands yeah, yeah. right in the middle of the building. Mm, mm. And if you ever hear the bell ring, you know another ship has sunk. Yeah, That's the tradition of the bell. Yeah, they yeah, ring yeah. the bell when they've had a loss. Yeah, which is quite a thought, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No. And there were, there were a couple of years it didn't ring at all, yeah. and a couple of years it was clang, 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 clang. It was <laughs> unbelievable. Sure, sure, but sure. here's the other part of London's history that just amazes me. Mm. And you may know the building. For years, uh, one of the offices that we had at Newsweek mm. was a Haymarket, a New Zealand house. Yes. Right? Yes, yes. Not an old building. No, no early 60s. Early 60s, I think. If but if you walk, and, and you know, you take a cab there, you get out, you walk upstairs. Sure. One day I walked by it. Mm. And you know the blue little plaques that yes, signify yes. history sure. was happening. Who, who lived there? Who yes, lived there? Yes. There's a plaque in that building. Now remember, this is a building that was built in the 60s, yes, right? Yes. And honors a guy who used to be the doorman there. Oh, who right. was it? No, no, go on. Who was the... Ho Chi Minh. Yes, 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 the, yes. Ho yes. Chi Minh was way, the doorman? Way, way, way back. Yeah. And didn't Ho Chi Minh also work at the Savoy or as a sort of chef yeah. or something like that I mean, unreal. Well. Yes, no, that's extraordinary. A bit like also in London, in North London, in the sort of Islington era, quite near King's Cross, at one of those blue plaques in Percy Circus is where Lenin lived before... The revolution, obviously. Right. And, you know, and I mean, London, of course, has been a great sort of magnet for people, for whatever reason, having to flee countries. You think of Freud before the Sigmund Freud, before the Second World War. Yes, but uh, not everybody uh, remembers uh, Karl, that. Karl you know? Marx, of course. Of and, course. You know, some, well, the one that blew but, me away, we were just yeah. recently in Mexico City. There's a museum dedicated to who? Leon Trotsky. Yeah, because because that's where he, he was met killed. Him, that's where he was stabbed to death. With the pick, well, pickaxe, actually. It, it was, well, he was stabbed <laughs> with a pickaxe, yes. And... <laughs> His grandson, who was the last one to see him alive, yeah. is still alive oh, and runs the museum. Oh, we sat and had a oh, well, long that, talk with him. It was right. unreal. That is, that is thrilling, actually. It, it? For me, that it was amazing. Thrilling. No, no, no. That is thrilling. Genuinely thrilling. I yeah. mean, to be able to have a living yeah, yeah, person yeah. tell you that story. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And he was the last person to see him alive. No, no, no. Amazing. But it's also <laughs> to see who comes to the museum today. Sure. Yeah, like, Trotskyites? Yeah. I mean, it. really? <laughs> I mean, but interesting history. I'm not sure. 
Well, as the historian yourself, mm. what's the one part of London history that is constantly surprising you that you're not expecting? Well, I think the city is a fascination. By which I mean the financial city rather yeah. than the, as it were, the overall city, sometimes known as the square mile. And it's changed a lot in character in the last 30 or 40 years. It's become less clubby, less intimate. A lot of high-rise buildings going up, like the Cheese Grater and the Gherkin and so on. And yet, you know, you just go around a corner and there's a little alley, a little passageway and so on. And it's that kind of mixture of intimacy and just sheer oldness, as it were, those traditional qualities, and yet combined with what is clearly a formidable financial machine yeah and i mean if you think about the british economy as a whole over the last half century or so i mean we've lost most of our manufacturing for example right. um and taken some real hits uh, in all sorts of areas i think coal mining for you know is comple virtually completely gone um uh, and so all that's been on a downward trajectory on the whole the service industries have been on the upward um with finance absolutely at the pinnacle of that and I, and it's that combination of that rather sort of quaint traditional kind of on the one hand and this formidable machine uh on the other and i mean 50 years ago back in the 60s uh, uh london as a financial center seemed very much on the decline um, new york absolutely on the up yeah and then there was that sort of fateful moment with the euro markets when president kennedy a few months before he was assassinated introduced something called the interest equalization tax essentially worried about capital going leaving the states and as a result the euro markets the euro dollar market euro bond market began in london and it was the beginning of london's reinvention as a financial center going back to what it had been before the first world war and that wasn't planned it just happened and, and and it really just just happened and look it was americans themselves who played a key role in that in that market saw the possibilities uh encouraged by the bank of england and that really was the start of the re-internationalization of london as a financial center and then the so-called big bang of the 1980s which opened the stock market up to to all comers kind of completely by the way it was called greed that. Well, greed came into it. <laughs> greed came into it. But the interesting thing about Big Bang in the 80s, which perhaps not everyone appreciates, is that in many ways it was imposed by the politicians, by Margaret Thatcher, by Nigel Lawson and one or two others, on the city. The city tends to be a place, this is just the long run historically, 19th and 20th centuries, where things get imposed on it and then it may work out well and it comes to believe it was his own idea in the first place. This is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. My next guest, and I say this in a loving way, is a fixture here. Um, he's been here for 26 years. I've known him all those 26 years. He's the head doorman, Jim Burns. How are you, sir? Lovely. Well, nice to meet you, Peter. I mean, when I first came here, there was you, there was Donald, the, the, the concierge with and the red hair. Alex Sarah. Yeah. Uh, Duncan. Yeah, uh, of course. And, of course, John, my counterpart. But the thing about your job, and people don't understand this, um, I did a book a couple of years ago called Hotel Secrets, and the person who basically knows everything is the doorman, because... You not only just control the real estate in front of the hotel, you know who's going in, you know who's going out, you know what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, what 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 looks good, what looks strange. I mean, you're you're in the pivotal position at the hotel because you're the first point of contact. It's, it's very true. It's very true. Um, we are 
the unofficial uh, ambassadors and also the unofficial security for the hotel. Uh, so we, we would stop somebody coming into the hotel who wasn't meant to be coming in. Um, in a nice way, of course, because we, we have to... Yes, can we escort you to the curb, sir? Well, <laughs> I, I've, I've not actually had to physically remove people in this hotel. I've done that in another hotel many years ago. But uh, I think being so tall and so elegantly dressed, most people respect... How tall are you, Jim? Well, with my top hat and shoes, it's seven foot. But with, in the stocking feet, it's <laughs> six foot six. <laughs> See, the beauty of radio is we, we have to tell people it's seven feet. It is, yeah, yeah. Wait, you're hard to miss. I stand out. I stand out, which is the purpose of the doorman. The doorman is meant to um, be recognizable so that when a customer's walking down the street, they say, oh, there's my hotel. Uh, generally, people walk down the Basically, we go, turn left at gym. That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> we, we can't finish this conversation without, without paying tribute to Sally Bullock. She, she was incredible. I mean, I've talked about her up earlier in the show. Um, she, she was the fixture. She was the life... And she was the entertainer. She was the general manager. But she was also the fixer because if a guest had a requirement which um, couldn't be fixed by anyone else, uh, and I knew this, I would go directly to Sally. Because she would know how to do it. She would know how it was done and, 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 and arrange it. Uh, so she, she would cut you. If you wanted to cut through red tape, speak to Sally. I mean, every time I would talk to her about something, her answer was always the same. Right, I'll sort it out. And she did. And that was it. And she did. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, but but it could have been a missing shoelace or something crucial, and she figured it out. It did. It, it didn't matter. Uh, she she realized it was important to you, and I think that's what counted. Yeah. Uh, she she was uh, the ultimate hotelier. And I will tell you this, and you were around when this happened. One day, I mean, Sally was always just Sally, and 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 I only knew her as a singular entity. And then one day, she said, well, "I have so I have something to tell you." She said, "I've fallen in love." And I'm leaving the hotel, and I'm moving to South Africa. I'm going, what? I know. <laughs> I'm like, everybody's sitting here. like, this is not the Sally that we know. And she did. And, and the next thing I know, as you know, she left us. She, and, and I'm absolutely convinced, uh, and, and there's a beautiful book written about it. Uh, I'm actually in the book, um, that I, I actually think she was murdered. I actually think she was murdered because... For Sally to give up this hotel and this life, which was her and vice versa, right? It was, she was synonymous with the hotel. The hotel was synonymous with Sally. People stayed here. Yes, oh, the hotel is oh, beautiful, but they stayed here because of Sally, right? That's true. And then she falls in love with some guy, right, who is, in my book, a little questionable. Yeah. And the next thing you know, I get a phone call where they saying she's dead. I know. And, it was, it's, and by the way, when you check into the hotel, in this hotel, on the nightstands, there's still the book by Linda. Exactly. And then the reason called, is... Oh, <laughs> uh, Sally... Oh. What's the name of the book, guys? Give me that book. Say hello, S say, say hello to Sally. Yeah. Say hello to I Sally. Mean, and, and Sally book. And, and I encourage people to read it because she really epitomized hospitality. Yeah, her, her brother was a um, was a film director. Yes, and I met him in Los Angeles. And Sally had been uh, a film star as a child. Yeah, and this continued. Uh, she was a star while she was here. I mean, it was not un unusual to see major major film stars just walking oh, in every for tea. day, every, every day. day. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you want to know what Michael Caine was doing, Sally's oh, 
hold on, you know, yeah. here he, I mean, everybody. And, but the point is, she treated everybody the same. Well, I mean, I, I noticed that particularly because I, I dealt with the whole spectrum of, of guests and they weren't all film stars who stayed yeah. here. I mean, many, many people stayed here who were ordinary uh, businessmen, CEOs, or just people on honeymoon. And she would, she would treat them as film stars. She'd meet them in the bar, she'd greet them in the lounge, yeah. in the lobby. Uh, there was no, uh, there was no class for Sally. She was right. just Sally. And in the small bar, which is now a larger bar here, but in the small bar that was here, I can say this now, and if Sally's listening, she would laugh. She could drink anybody under the table. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and she'd say, "Oh, you think you know single malt?" And she's, and she she'd pull one off the table, and next thing you know, you were asleep. I know, it was over. I know. It, yeah. It's it's lucky that her flat was only uh, on Leon Square because exactly she, she drove there. I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she did it either. But I'm telling you, the reason why people came was for Sally, and the reason why people come back is it was basically the memory. It of Sally. was. It was. Yeah. yeah. And, we, and uh, I still get people turning up who who where is Sally, and yeah. they hadn't heard. I know, but they still come. They do. They do. I know. Yeah, they you had know, a memorial service. Listen, the plaza had Eloise. The Athenaeum has Sally. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Jim Burns. And you can't miss him, folks, with the top hat, seven feet tall, standing guard right in front of the Athenaeum. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Here's a question always on the go. Yeah, you are. Now you can take CBS Mornings with you, and we want to go. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews with today's leading figures in politics, business, and entertainment in the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast, available every weekday wherever you get your podcasts.